What's going on, podcast? Where is your man Terrence J? Welcome to Real Talk Podcast. Today's topic we're going to talk about classroom talk one on one. I have some special guests on. I'm going to let them introduce themselves. Hey, Pancakes family. This is Barika, CEO of Barika's Buzz LLC. I am a consultant, an education consultant, as well as the developer of Sister Soul Speak podcast and Sister Soul Speak Sister Circle. Hey, podcast family. My name is Kenosha Grigsby. I'm a 22-year veteran master teacher, um, teach AP English uh, for past 22 years, and I'm here to uh, give my take on the current topic. Okay, okay. How y'all ladies doing over there? Hey, well, thanks for asking. Doing well. Same here. Thank you for asking. Okay. All right. Um, let's get these questions on um, going on. Um, first to you, uh, Kenosha. Um, why did you decide to become a teacher? Well, I didn't start out uh, as a teacher. I actually started out as a social worker. I was a investigator for DCFS. And I didn't last in that profession because it was, uh, it was awful, to be honest. And I didn't, I, I knew I wanted to support people, but not at such uh, a low level. So I decided that education uh, would be the next step for me. And so I went back to school, got, uh, I completed an English degree in one year. And here I am, 22 years later. Okay, okay, that's good. Um, to you, um, Barika, um, why did you um, decide to become a teacher? Allegedly because I was living in the state of Minnesota and they had a huge disproportionality of young black boys that were in special education. So my decision was largely based on special education and with the goal of exiting as many as I could. That's awesome. Okay. Um, Kenosha, uh, decide, um, describe your, your classroom um, management structure. So um, my classroom really manages itself because I begin every year uh, establishing a culture of honor. And so um, because that is our foundation, children really just kind of uh, govern themselves. I don't have a lot of classroom issues because, again, our foundational principle is uh, honor. And so once I teach children what that is and walk them through that and demonstrate for them what being honorable and operating in integrity looks like, um, I, I really don't have to uh, deal with I, I really don't have a lot of behavioral issues. So it's relationship, it, to answer your question directly, I suppose, it's uh, relationship building. And so I build community and... Uh, you know, that's it. I'm very intentional about that. Okay. Um, Barika, describe your classroom management structure. 
So I'm in a very different environment now. I am one of the teachers that have walked away from the physical classroom. I primarily teach um, virtually. So there is little to no classroom management because in all honesty, if I'm just tired of what they're doing, I can hit mute and not have to hear it anymore. But prior to that, um, I believe my classroom was a community. When one student acted out, it affected us as an entire community. Um, I was very big on if you disrupted the community, they needed to apologize to the other students as well as me for disrupting our community. Largely, it worked. Um, it's the last couple of years where I took, I, I made the decision to walk away from, um, the physical environment. And that had a lot to do with a particular discipline program than it did, uh, students because students here in the city of Chicago have zero consequences. So that largely affects the entire school population. Mm. Okay. Um, to you, uh, Kenosha, uh, do you think students are different than they were before COVID-19? Um, if so, uh, what changes have um, you observed and how have you um, dealt with them in your classroom? Well, I, I, I do think that children are different uh, because uh, during that two-year period in which we um, were like in the thick of the pandemic with all of the uncertainty and all of the uh, fear that was uh, going around with COVID, uh, I do think that kids experienced uh, a lot of isolation and just the, the trauma of stress that was heaped on them from either their parents uh, from watching the news because not only were we dealing with COVID, we were dealing with the craziness of our political system, uh, I mean, of the political landscape. And so it, there were just a myriad of themes. And, and so uh, a lot of kids come to school and school is their escape from the instability at home or the lack of socialization at home or, you know, indifferent parents or uninvolved parents or whatever. And so I think that on an emotional level, kids were really impacted, but did not, and maybe do not have the language to communicate their feelings. And so they kind of disconnected socially um, on, a, on a human level and kind of turned inward and started getting what they needed, uh, so to speak, uh, through their phones and through social media or whatever. So they became more socially active, but less physically, uh, you know, and, and, and they became more engaged socially and disengaged more so physically. And I, I, I think that that's been extremely adversarial. And that is a conversation that we aren't really having. I think people are focusing mostly on academics but they're not talking about how our children have, you know, lost their ability to, to really communicate. They, they don't know how to, uh, their interpersonal skills uh, and, and interpersonal skills, they, they really are lacking. 
And so it, I think it, more than anything, COVID affected them emotionally and socially. And as a consequence, the academics for some, for some suffered as well. Okay. Um, Barika, do you think uh, students different or do you think uh, the students are different than they were before COVID? And coming from the perspective of, of teaching special ed, I don't believe that um, the students are different. I think the students understand when adults are winging it and a large part of remote learning was winging it. I don't think anybody um, um, expected it and there was some structure, but then there was um, an overkill into trying to um, make remote learning exactly like school. Um, I believe the students were on way too long, but on the other end of the spectrum here, it was a very good opportunity for black parents in particular to have the opportunity to utilize some homeschooling skills. This it, COVID was a really great opportunity for parents to connect to their kids. Um, it was not utilized in that manner. It literally became an infight between um, their children were at home, giving them exactly what we were seeing in the classroom, and they wanted them back in school. So mm-hmm. there was some learning loss, but the, the opportunities there were not capitalized on, which is usually the case in our community. So it was a very big push to get teachers back in the classroom so somebody will have six hours a day, six and a half hours a day of babysitting time while they were able to rest. Um, I'm not sure about Sister Kenosha, but I've seen everything remotely for uh, on a camera that I care to see in a lifetime. I mean, from mm. um, not dressed parents to parents that were being very intimate with their boyfriends, to we've even had some cases here in Chicago. There was a little girl who was being molested by a cousin that was caught on camera. And unfortunately, oh um, the teacher in that situation ended up losing her job because the district felt that she um, she should have uh, said something, but she called the police. And that's how they were able to catch the cousin because she called the police immediately, but she kept her camera on to make sure that the perpetrator didn't go anywhere. So I got mixed feelings about COVID. Like, there are a lot of things that went on with COVID. There are some children who did exceptionally well with COVID. Mine in particular. My daughter killed it in COVID. But I didn't allow her to do class in her bedroom. She couldn't lay down and do class. I'd set up an independent space for her in the home. And I think that we, we didn't capitalize on that as a race. Um, I saw a lot of little girls in their pajamas, a lot of little boys with no shirt on. Those were half of my day was spent, baby, go put a shirt on. Sweetheart, you can't sit in the camera like that. Sit up, wake up. It was a lot of management in that area so yes COVID did do 
some damage, but some of the, the bulk of that, that characteristic and that social climate has to do with the climate that they're already in. Kenosha, um, what did you like, dislike about working remotely? So in my district, uh, I'm in a, uh, I'm here in Northwest Arkansas. And so um, we had a, a unique kind of situation where our district was able to respond almost immediately. Uh, our kids were already one-on-one with Chromebooks. And so the transition to remote was easier because they we were already working through a well, some of the kids were already, uh, I'm sorry, some of the teachers were already using Google Classroom. Um, and so now it's, it's, everyone is using it. But but then a lot of us who were tech savvy, we were using uh, Google Classroom. And so we already had like certain protocols in place. And our students, uh, like I said, were one-on-one. And for those who did not have internet at home, I, you know, they were provided with, um, the resources to have it. And so for me, because, you know, I was teaching uh, AP English, pre-AP English, I'm sorry. So my kids stayed engaged. Um, and so it wasn't, you know, and, and not all of them, let me be honest. I mean, clear about that. Not all of them, but quite a few stayed engaged. And, you know, we were only online or remote from March until May. And so we could not, their grades couldn't be lowered. And so that was, you know, a good thing. We could only, uh, their grades could only be increased if they had done, you know, something to increase their current, the grade they had before we left uh, at the end of, I think it was like the Friday before spring break or so. But so uh, we were only out that last nine weeks of the 20. 2020, 2019 school year, I think. And so we went right back in August. So, um, but that came, you know, we had to deal with all the social distancing. We had lots of absences due to, you know, the influx of COVID. So, I mean, it it was a very, uh, it was challenging, to say the least. It, It was challenging. And I personally, like, I don't believe in the notion of learning loss, but I do believe that children, their stamina, their learning or their read for me in particular, I feel like their reading stamina waned quite a bit because they, they didn't have to, it, it was easier to disengage academically. And so we are still, um, see, I'm still seeing the effects of that where, you know, where kids, just don't want to do the work. Not that they necessarily can't. Now I'm seeing kids, uh, because they've been made to believe that a lot of them actually have learned how to be helpless. Uh, because I think too, with, with during the COVID uh, time that parents, uh, allow their kids to regress. Some of them did, you know, and, and kind of just did everything for them or whatever, or just, um, employ whatever type of coping mechanisms they could to assuage their kids' concerns. And so a lot of kids, I feel like, learn to be helpless if they didn't keep some type of systems in place where 
you know, expectations were reinforced and, you know, whatever. But um, there are challenges. There are challenges that we still see in the classroom today. But I think mostly it, it deals with uh, the lack of stamina, like, you know, academic stamina. The kids who are behind in reading, because, I mean, that's a nationwide thing that I don't think has anything to do with COVID. I, I really think that our kids and their lack of academic progress, especially in the areas of reading, has to deal with, you know, that whole constructivist movement that came through that, you know, where kids didn't learn phonics. So we have almost an entire generation of children who are functionally illiterate. But that, that, you know, that's a whole other problem, right? So that, I don't think, that didn't have anything to do with COVID. That that was, you know, with the curriculum that lots of schools ascribe to, or lots, lots of districts ascribe to, you know, through that whole balanced literacy approach, which we are now 10 years after the fact, 10, 15 years after the fact, are now just coming to realize that it didn't work and we have lots of children who cannot read. So that, I think, made the COVID issue work. Okay. Um, Barika, what is the greatest challenge uh, facing teachers today? Um, two things I'll give with that. Number one is uh, administration, and number two is um, administration's lack <laughs> of response <laughs> to disrespectful students. Um I can speak for myself as a person who walked away from public education. I cannot, 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 I did not, this was a second career for me, this is not a first career choice. It was a second career choice. So I made the conscious choice of knowing that I was getting ready to deal with a population of students who everybody said struggled. One of the issues is administration's um, response to students. I'm tired of the word trauma. I'm tired of the word traumatized. There was whole all kinds of workshops on trauma informed when in reality we threw away consequences. And as mm-hmm. a as a, a a black woman that grew up on the west side of Chicago. I'm not cut from that cloth. I didn't care about that whole, oh, you'll go viral, be on the nose. I I knew it was only a matter of time before I was going to be that teacher y'all saw in that video. I knew it was just a matter of time because they were getting bolder and I had zero issues with getting with a kid. Zero. I would tell. I used to tell folks all the time. I get with your baby just like I would anybody else's baby. And because administration, when you send a kid out of the world and they bring that kid back and that kid that went somewhere and had a piece of candy, get a play with some teddy bears, you didn't have a chance to repair yourself or your class from that disruption. You just got to drop that kid back in there because somebody believed that they're missing instruction. Just because a kid sits in the room does not mean that instruction is going to naturally absorb in their head. They have to participate. So I believe that the two reasons that teachers are walking away has to do with the lack of response and administration. Those are the two key issues why we are choosing to walk away. It's easier, and the crazy part is, I'm making very good money writing my own ticket. 
than I was sitting there having my hands constrained. Because if I got an unruly student, I just tell the parent I'm gonna end my contract with them. Mm. And just move on to the next kid. I no longer have to sit there and take it. If your kid is choosing not to work, I let that parent know, okay, I've been here three weeks in a row. They're refusing to do work. I got a waiting list. I'm going to move on to the next kid. Y'all call me when y'all come back. But I have the flexibility to say, if you want me to show you data, that's 285 an hour. If you just want me to do tutoring, that's 200 an hour. So now I've got some flexibility and some room to play with. And now I'm starting to get back to my why of teaching. And my largely my clientele is all special ed kids. And I'm getting back to my why because all of these kids are focused. And Sister Kenosha hit the nail on the head. I'm able to teach phonics. I don't have my mm-hmm. hands constrained to a curriculum that does not have phonics included. I could sit mm-hmm. there and I, I'm doing phonics. I got kids who were not reading who are now reading. So it has been a be- bigger benefit for me. But the two main reasons for me, I would say, is administration and administration's lack to respond. Okay. Um, Kenosha, to you, um, what is the greatest challenges uh, facing teachers today? I would agree with this, Barika. She, uh, support, lack of support from administration and uh, lack of community at school. More often, I'm secondary ed, so our school is huge. We serve a population of over 2,000 students, 9th through 12th grade. And so we have a lot of teachers in our building. And so there has to be uh, an intentionality behind building community with teachers and, you know, making everybody feel seen and respected and appreciated. And so that has to be a very, very intentional thing on the part of the administrators. And so, but when they are busy, mostly dealing with, you know, discipline issues or, you know, whatever may arise throughout the day, it's so easy to um, allow teachers to slip through the crack, you know, and then you only get to know them from your 10 15 minute evaluation of them. And so it's, you know, it, it, it's really um, hard for teachers to feel appreciated because we, we go, we don't go into this profession expecting to be, become wealthy, right? We understand fully what it is. We choose this profession out of a passion and out of a love to help uh, students learn and to eradicate ignorance, seriously. And so, um, but it's it's the, the, the small trivial things that I think that some administrator, administrators who are often on power trips, you know, it, and they, they make things personal and so I think that once it leaves the realm, the professional realm, and it becomes personal, then teachers, you know, we're, teacher, no teacher wants to go to work and feel like, you know, they have to, uh, they, they feel threatened or intimidated by their administrators or, or whatever. And so because there's no communication or there's this intentional, like, bullying almost, you know what I mean? And I see it every day. Now, I don't necessarily deal with it uh, because I'm a fierce advocate for myself. I, I, I don't I don't mess around. And, and the great thing I love is I'm employable. So I don't I'm not going to stay anywhere and be mistreated. Right. So if I, if I happen to not 
get renewed or however, however the ship may go down, uh, I'm employable. And I'm fairly intelligent. I can create my own money. So it doesn't, I don't care about that part. I'm never uh, threatened by that. So, but there are teachers who, you know, don't have that, that same attitude and they suffer because they are, they feel bullied or they don't feel appreciated. And, and so they eventually, you know, they eventually leave. Okay. Now, uh, to you, Barika, um, what's your thoughts on the the teacher, the substitute teacher that was in North Carolina that got the fighting with um, the student? Well, yeah, that was good for her. About time, sis. Shut up. You shut up. You shut up. I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it. Now, two things there. Number one, I don't think that I've ever had in my career, and I want to weigh um, at my 10 year juncture, I started out in Minnesota, I ended in Chicago. Um, I never had a student bold enough. I just had some to make some threats, but I never had one bold enough because if you were bold enough to come behind my desk, well, see, it ended early for me because the minute she stepped behind my desk, it was all for me. I'm not going to give you the opportunity to even tell her, don't touch me because I didn't already touch you. It had been over with for me. But I came from a climate where in Minnesota, and things have changed because I still have lots of uh, former colleagues and friends there who have all told me things have changed. When I started my teaching career in Minnesota, we were required to do our own physical holds. So it would have been nothing for me to put a kid on, in a physical hole and tell her you in the wrong space. But also kids knew I wanted to be played with. Now... From my understanding, she was taking pictures of her. So, yes, she should have t- taken the phone. And the phone, most schools have a policy of don't have your phone out. So I get it why she took the phone. First issue came when she went behind the desk. Second issue was she was engaging with her. What I'd like for her to have done was to remove herself from the situation completely. However... I'm glad she didn't turn her back on her because if she had turned her back on her, she was already invested in, in, in Hitler. She was already invested in that. And for whatever reason, she felt like she could take her. It is a climate of young girls who do feel that way that they could take a grown woman. Um, <laughs> she just got taught a really good lesson. As as it has been said, uh, if you run up, you're going to get done up. She got done up. <laughs> <laughs> so my ass out to her. Now, an educator who could have been, even a sub, she could have been possibly a really good educator. Now, the field has lost yet another one, and she's going to have some stuff she got to deal with personally um, in terms of those charges. Um, They may even send DCFS out to look at her with her own children. There's some repercussions that go behind that. But the initial, yeah, Yes, she did what she had to do because it is about protecting yourself. She's not the only teacher that faces that type of violence in classrooms. I have, I've had a student to shoot at me and he liked me. So (laughs) imagine if the student didn't like me. So it it is, it's that climate. So yeah, she got a good and she should have got a good. She should have. Okay. Um, to you, uh, Kenosha, uh, what's your thoughts on the situation with the substitute teacher uh, getting a fighting with um, with the class with a, with a student? Well, I I don't really disagree with Barika. 
uh, I think that the moment a child forgets that they are a child, you know, then I just might forget that I am an adult. Um, because when you put yourself in a position to, you know, when you physically touch me, right now, now we have a whole other situation, right? Uh, and, and, and sure, there are a myriad of things that the substitute could have done prior to, um, you know, it turning to an altercation. Uh, I, I would have, you know, asked for the child's phone and as soon as she got up, I, I would have reached out to the office or whatever. I mean, I would have tried to avoid um, physically uh, coming in contact with the child. Uh, but as someone who has um, been attacked by a student and, and, and I did defend myself and because I, I, you know, I'm a black woman, tall, um, and I, I usually don't have kids to run up on me. But every now and again, it's one who tries it and then they find out the hard way. But I'm always, I, I'm quick to try to de-escalate. That, that's my first approach. I want to de-escalate and I want to, you know, uh, uh, get it uh, remedied as soon as possible. I, th- I never want to physically engage a, a kid, never. Uh, however, I never want, I won't ever allow child support me either. So that, like, like that's a thing will ever happen. Like, because... You, you're not going to run up on me and, and attempt to fight me and think that I'm just going to let you do so without repercussion. Like, I, like that, that just won't happen. And I think that I applaud the teacher for having the wherewithal to not finish her off and, and, and call for help because, I, you know, I, I'm not certain. I, I mean, I think by the time we had made it down to the floor, I'm not sure how where that would have gone for me. But I, I would like to believe that I would have kept my composure long enough to have de-escalated it, maybe. But these children, because they have learned that there are not many consequences, they've been involved. They're they're emboldened, and so um, they don't. They think that they can do whatever they want to do, and they have learned, you know, that there are no repercussions or consequences for their being dishonorable and or disrespectful to teachers, and so. We are really, you know, like sitting duck. We don't have any protection, any, you know. And so it, it, if you're going to go out, I feel like if you're going to get suspended or you're going to get fired or whatever, you might as well go out with a bang because, you know, it, it's, it, it's too risky, you know, and parents aren't teaching. I, well, I won't say parents because we do. I believe that most parents teach their children to behave well or whatever. A lot of these children are out here behaving in ways that would absolutely embarrass their families. So, but I just think that because in our schools, there there are seemingly not that many consequences, you know, for children who violate policy. But as I, I spoke when I spoke to you earlier this week, I was saying that, you know, this is a great opportunity if there isn't one. Uh, to revisit the school's overall phone policy, their de-escalation policy, you know, and all of those things, because, you know, there has to be systems in place uh, for everybody to be safe and to be protected. So I just think that there were, there are several uh, gaps in their protocol as it relates to like discipline, cell phone usage and all, all of those things. So it's just, it's a multi-pronged issue. And I just think that it escalated way quicker than it should have. 
and the the, the district has uh, a lot to to figure out. But it's inevitable that it's going to happen again. Yep, I totally agree on that. Um, which you make a valid points on that. Uh, we definitely have to go back and revisit. Um, the system itself and look at the policies, uh, uh, like you said, again, you know, if teachers out there and teachers really can't defend themselves, it's like, all right, is you going to let a child continue to put their hands on you or even come behind the desk? Uh, um, those things. Yeah. I seen a video where, um, a teacher was actually walking out, out of the classroom with the, with the young lady, um, and the young lady walked behind her and like pushed her, you know, like pushed her and yeah, was, was, yeah. yeah you know and was shutting the door on behind that situation you know so it's kind of it's kind of crazy um looking at those situations and we can and, and the sad part is the the consequence for the kids is, is minimum right but for us you lose your license if you are you know you could possibly lose your license if you are if a claim of child abuse is substantiated you know you you become non-renewable you know i mean it's, it's so you know it's so many uh things consequences that are involved with us but the kids are, there's simply none right because it, you know we are supposed to be the adults in the room true right but we can't do our jobs effectively um you know if there's a threat of violence and and teaching has become a hazardous profession. Teachers are being injured almost every week because of violent, aggressive students. And and, and and there's nothing, I mean, nothing to protect us. I mean, we literally are sitting ducks every day. Every day. Wow. And as I hear myself saying that out loud, I'm like, why the heck do we go back? You know what I mean? Like, and, 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 and it's, a, it's a profession that has, that basically promotes martyrdom, right? Like, like it, I, teaching is one of the professions that makes us feel like we should willingly set ourselves on fire to keep our students warm. And, and, and that that is just out of order, you know? It, it forces us to be out of integrity with ourselves. And so, you know, it's 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 toxic if you think about it. Right, right. I totally, totally agree on that. On that one, there. Definitely agree on that one. Do you say like to ask you? Do your district practice restorative justice? Uh, not to my knowledge, no. Okay. And I'm not even ask you about the practices. A large part, uh, especially in the Midwest. I practice in restorative justice. So if you haven't, if it hasn't, haven't gotten down there, it may be on the way. Some of the practices within restorative justice, they target urban schools, number one. Um, there is consequences are removed. So, for example, two fifth grade girls got to fight and one of the fifth grade girls went to stab another one. There was a clerk that was trying to intervene. The clerk ended up getting stabbed. The little girl was back at school the next day, and we didn't see the clerk anymore. She had to have surgery on that hand. So I'm hoping it doesn't reach down there to you all, but a large part of that is one of the reasons why it is so dangerous 
to be in the classrooms. And, and I agree with you. Teachers are sitting ducks. You're either going to have to decide, is this worth it? Or you're going to have to make the decision and walk away. Because even with that pension, the way that they play the pension games with teachers, you're not set up for the rest of your life. Mm-mm, for example, no. here in the Midwest, they do not pay into Social Security. So all they have is their private pension. So if you're not putting in at least minimum 30 years, you can forget about living that comfortable life. So a large part of that in this Midwest is you have teachers who are working much longer than they'd like to. So you been, they've been there 40 years. They already bitter. They've seen the administration rotate in and out for probably about a good 20 years. You're asking them to teach in a whole different way. And then there's zero consequences for kids. They stay because they need that pension investment. It's us younger teachers, us 10 and less, that it's not an investment for us because I'm not going, I'm, I'm definitely not going to put myself in that position. One of my my topic for my dissertation is the chaos that restorative justice has caused in urban schools. It does not work for um, black students at all. Black students have to have some kind of consequence. You curse your teacher out and the dean come take you and you sit out the room for about five or ten minutes and then you walk right back here, come right back smirking. And as soon as that dean leaves, they go right back to cursing you out. And it's all they want you to do is just to write it up and, and somebody will come and have a restorative conversation. That's one of our issues that we are facing. And if you all have seen how they're reacting in Chicago, that's one of the reasons why they downtown cutting up is because they have no consequences in school. And I'm all for it. Good, go tap downtown, cause maybe somebody will catch y'all that hey, you might need to address this. Mm. But it has become a large problem in terms of safety, and not just safety for teachers, but safety for other students as well. Other students don't want to go to school with uh, having to um, deal with the level of violence that, uh, is happening in schools now. The particular place that I am contract, that I contracted with is a last chance, uh, institution. So if they don't make it in this particular school, jail is the next step. This is the school before jail. So if they don't make it, they're going straight to jail. And the crazy part is, I have a caseload of 17 and 16 of them are boys. Mm. And never even heard of this company before, but this particular company has 32 sites throughout Illinois. What is the name of the company? The Mentor Group, Mm. which I find very interesting. Because I think it was in response to large numbers moving to the suburbs. Because that's where a lot of their sites are, out in the suburbs. So I think that they developed this company in response to large numbers moving to the suburbs. Because that's that's a, a norm here in the Midwest. They'll pop from school to school to school to school to school. And then when they run out of city options, 
They move to the suburbs and they start that process all over. That's one of the key issues. The second key issue is the way that um, the discipline code is written here. For example, I could share, because I have two principal friends in class with me, and both of them has had this issue. Student bought a clip to school. Student did not, neither student got expelled because the policy is written that the clip must be in the gun and the safety has to be off in order to expel a student. So now that mm-hmm. student bought a clip to school, it's safe to say the gun is somewhere behind. Well, I I think a lot of it translates to students equal dollars, right? And so, you know, I I feel like kids, you know, districts have figured, you know, have uh, stopped, kids aren't disciplined or suspended as quickly because, you know, that impacts federal dollars. And so... But but then we are left to deal with that. You know, we are left to deal with that because of the financial implications of it. So it's it's just it's crazy. It, it is a never ending cycle. Wow, that's crazy. There, um, this was definitely a, a a good topic and a good discussion um, to start off into. Um, because this is definitely a, a, like I said again, it's a great topic. Um, Brika, do you have any closing remarks? And closing kind of remarks would be this. Uh, I would speak to my um, educator uh, colleagues. My closing remarks would be investigate how well you can get out and get out now and start your own business. You would be surprised the market that is screaming for quality educators and we can remain you can still keep your teacher license most states are willing to work with you on you keeping your uh teacher license because all my professional development comes from the state but i will say to educators it's not worth your home it's not worth your sanity and it certainly is not worth your self-care if you can get out get out okay i'm working Uh on the exit strategy now (laughs) (laughs) absolutely I'm working. I'm like, I'm like, Marika, I'm about to slide in your DMs. I'm about to find you. <laughs> Listen, I'm like, uh, uh, Terrence, hook us up because I'm like, now what company you work for? <laughs> <laughs> I got you. I got you. Um, uh, Kenosha, do you have any closing remarks? Um, I think that education is an amazing profession. I love that I've had the opportunity to impact not just my current students and former students, but generations. And so, and I, and, and I, I have seen the impact of my influence on students. However, um, you know, I, I, I'm not burnt out yet. I mean, I'm, I'm 45 or 20, you know, this is the end of my 22nd year. So I've been teaching almost half of my life, which is kind of insane when I say it out loud. Uh, but I love it. I absolutely do love it. And but I know that my time in the classroom is waning uh, because it, it, the risk is not worth the investment, you know. And so I would echo what Barika said, you know. I think that it is 
imperative that teachers, especially those of us who are really, really good at our job, to learn how to pivot quickly and to position themselves to uh, create, create, you know, an entrepreneurial space for themselves, you know, because this, this profession is getting way too volatile, way too toxic for it to be sustainable, uh, for, especially for, you know, uh, teachers who are disciplined, who, you know, have a, a, a particular way on how they do things. You're veteran teachers, you're strong teachers. We're the ones who are leaving quickly and, and we're, are, we're being replaced by young teachers who don't, are, who don't have to paid as much, but a lot of them have, you know, don't have as strong of, you know, their pedagogical skills leave a lot to be desired. So it's, it's, um, it's a mixed bag for sure. So I would just say to join your local union if there is one, uh, keep you some bail money on the side and, uh, <laughs> you know, invest in your career outside of the classroom so that if need be, you can pivot quickly. Got you on that. I like both of y'all closing remarks. Uh, like I said, again, I want to thank both of my special special guests for coming on. My name is Terrence J, and we out. Thank you, Terrence.